Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she and her. And today we are so lucky to have author of the book, Care at the Core, on the show. You'll hear me uh, quote to the author, Sherry, a number of times. And every time I quote to her, um, you don't have to pause. Uh, I have included the links to all of her amazing resources over in the show notes. So enjoy our conversation. Hello, my name is Sherry Spielitz. Um, I teach elementary physical education at an international school in Vienna, Austria, where I have uh, been on staff uh, apparently for uh, 25 years. And even uh, if you add coaching track and field, uh, a few more years uh, can be added to that. Um, so I am super pleased to be here today with you. Uh, first of all, congratulations on that. That's such a milestone. Um, and, you know, again, that school is so lucky to have someone like you there for for 25 years and counting. Um, so thank you again for, for making time in your summer. Um, uh, and I, I think we'll start actually by, I'm going to do that weird thing of quoting you back to you. Um, so in the extract from your book, you write, quote, writing has turned out to be my most effective means to process what I read, hear, and experience. Every conversation exposes the ongoing volley of ideas within as I try my best to understand and make sense of the world around me, end quote. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, you might share with listeners just a little bit more about your writing process, you know, just specifically what it looks like in practice and how it might be a useful strategy for, for educators. Um, you know, what, it, what is the value and sort of, I know that, um, you know, the writing at the level that you do, I'm guessing is, is not exactly stress-free, but I would imagine that process is just incredibly valuable. Well, thank you. I, um, it's always uh, amazing to me when people actually have read my words. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, and it's interesting for me to think about my writing process because I feel like I go through life writing. I go through my day. I'm, I'm constantly sort of writing as I reflect. So just my reflections are already me formulating sentences, not that they necessarily get written down, but it's just sort of the way that I, I kind of go through the world. Um, and, and I can say that now, for instance, now that I'm on vacation and I've got some, some time to myself, um, I've been exploring uh, this my new neighborhood. So I moved in March and, and it's just, there's a lot of green. So there's a lot of green spaces. So some really lovely hills. And so I go out for these walks and I'm not necessarily trying to get in a workout, sometimes maybe a little bit, but, but really it's just about the walk. And so I'm walking and I'm looking up and I'm thinking about trees, like trees are just huge, right? And, and so as I'm walking, I'm thinking about trees and birds and can I see them? And, and so all of that is that, that mind work, that, that just the, the simple um, act of being in the world and being aware of what's going on around me is then, comes back into my writing. So when I come back home and I've eaten and I've done all those other things that when I actually sit down and I maybe go on Twitter, that, that impulse to, to sort of capture what I was thinking about or what I felt um, is always there. And so when I was younger, it was, it was journals. It's still, I use a journal all the time. Like I'm scribbling stuff down in there, mostly feelings. Um, but I would say in the last few years where my writing has happened online, 
So through blogging um, and social media, through Twitter mainly, Twitter is so text-based, so that's where I spend a lot of my time. And that is the place where things are coming at me. And I, you know, often feel compelled to respond. And my response is in, is written. <laughs> sometimes longer, sometimes it's a, a tweet back with a, with a, a GIF. Um, but that my writing is constant. It's sort of, I think writing is kind of the way I think. And I, I mean, I, I, I think... It's what you're saying really is that curiosity, right? That, that really indulging um, and exercising, activating that inner curiosity. And I love what you say there about using social media for that, because I've also felt that way that Twitter is almost like a quantum journal, you know, where there's so many different dimensions of it. Uh, you know, and I wonder for your students, do they have an awareness that that's also sort of you know, I, I know that sometimes our students just imagine, you know, we, we live in our, in our classrooms, we sleep at school. Right. Um, you know, do, do you talk to them about the role that that sort of plays in your life uh, and, and as it might connect to your subject area? Um, not so much. Um, I teach elementary PE. So that means that my, my students are between four and 11. So they are not really here to hear about me and my writing and my thinking and my big brain, um, they're like, what are we doing today? What are we gonna play? You know, are we gonna do this? Are we, are we do, gonna do the thing that we did last time? So, and, and that's, that's cool. Actually, I think it's probably one of the things that allows me to continue writing, that allows me to, to persist on social media is that my workday is very immediate. Like children, working with children is so humbling they constantly are there to remind you, no, you're here to work with us. Like, like get, you know, like get on it, ma'am. Um, so I love that. I love that immediacy. So teaching when I'm with my students, that is the thing I feel that grounds me. It absolutely grounds me that I am constantly being educated about what's relevant for them, right? So what's relevant for them is, what are we doing? Am I going to have a good time? Who am I going to be with? Is this going to be fun? You're not going to make it fun? Wait, okay, well, wait, then maybe I don't want that. And so that this, that's, the, that's the dialogue that we're having. And so um, I think that that is a key part to um, enjoying the, uh, the, the sort of intellectual activity that I enjoy on social media and, and elsewhere. Um, it's that, that they are the balance. They are the thing. And also they are the ones that, again, that talking about their, their, the way that they educate me, they consistently remind me that I do not have all the answers and, and a lot of my answers may be wrong or simply misinformed. And that's so helpful. It's just, it's the best. And I'd imagine, you know, again, having people in your life that continually remind you of, you know, asking that question, is this going to be fun? The value of fun, I think is something that we could talk about. That could be a whole other episode, you know, that it is really important. Um, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes it's easy to forget that, that value. So that's a great question to, for us to be asking ourselves, uh, not just in the summer, but always. So Sherry, I'm, I'm going to quote to you yet again uh, this time. And, and listeners, I'll mention the, the link to Sherry's book will be in the show notes, as will the link to the article I'm just about to quote from. So this is from Ed Surge, a piece in 2020, where you wrote, quote, 
I want to emphasize how vital it is that we hold on to our humanity with both hands and a full heart. I want to encourage us to open doors for imaginations wilder than our own. I'm imploring us to notice how and when we may be the thing preventing a necessary change. End quote. First of all, wow. Uh, you know, for the concerns of this podcast, where we're thinking about ways to make schools more LGBTQ plus inclusive, that line just deeply, deeply resonates with me. And I'm wondering, um, you know, if you might have an anecdote that you can share from your practice of, of what it means to do that noticing that you're, that you're speaking of in that line. Um, there are so many ways in which this happens for me. Again, I come back to my students and because they are um, so young and they're, they want to know things right away. I mean, they have a lot of why questions and, um, and I think there have been a few, a few incidents. So for instance, one of the things that happens to me regularly, I want to say, well, regularly, that means that's how, that at least once or twice a year. And it's usually among my youngest students that students will ask me directly, are you a girl or a boy? And, and I have to, I, and I usually pause and I think, okay, this, I've heard this question before. And then what I usually do is I go back to them and we'll say, well, what do you think? And they'll say, well, and you know, you can say, some will say, I don't know. And then most will say, well, I think you're a girl. I'll say, well, yeah, I identify as a woman. And then we can begin to, then I, then I can decide sort of in that moment, how in-depth do I want to go? Do I want to you know, reference something more? But the point is, is that it's, it's being available for that question, mm. not shutting it down. And I realized that it has, that the roots of the question are many, that it's not, it's, it's okay, that there are several reasons for that particular child, why my, the way that I show up to them is not, like they can't quite categorize it. And the need to categorize is, is understandable. Right, because of course they're like, oh, they're boys and girls. Um, but when I trouble that, for instance, in in some cases, we'll say, well, friends, you may not, you don't, you don't necessarily have to choose one or the other. And that is again, that's another conversation that I can have with students when I just sort of trouble their assumptions, and then we and they and actually they decide how much more they want to get into it that I'm available, that I, you know, offer something. And then they kind of let me know, okay, we're ready to go on with that conversation or, okay, I, let me just pause there. So that, that those are things that, that come up again and again. I want to say that they, that they kind of cycle around, right? Because it shows up then in the way that maybe they speak to each other, the way that they will address each other. Um, and sometimes I may need to intervene and offer again, hey, how are we addressing each other? Is that, is that fair? Is that equitable? Is that inclusive? And we talk about what those things mean. So um, those are all examples of how I find myself working with those topics. And again, I'm still learning. I'm still finding, okay, well, am, I, am, I, am I doing this right? But I can't always be stuck on, is it right? But it's really about, am I available? Am I, am I opening doors rather than closing them? And that's for, for students, that is key because regardless of how we respond, we are teaching, right? Kids are, kids are learning from how we respond. If I, if I just kind of like don't respond at all, they're also saying, ooh, that's a topic we can't talk about. 
So that's also a message. So regardless of how we, how we do it, we are, we're giving a message. And I think that we need to be very conscious as educators of how we are, which message we are sending. And we need to know why we're sending. And so that, that idea of us being our own roadblocks, oh my goodness, that's, that's an awareness that we have to continually work at, recognizing where we are the ones standing in the way of what our students are trying to get at. There's so many aspects to what you just said that, you know, I feel like I've got a hundred sub questions that I would follow up with, but, you know, I really love the piece that you're, you're getting at with even just the notion of in school, who is sort of the, you know, the holder or the decider of who gets to ask the questions and that exchange and that relationship, you know, where you're using questioning as really relationship building is so powerful. Uh, You know, and the other, the other key question that you reflected on yourself, you know, when students bring us certain questions, what is the, what is at the root of that? Um, You know, I think if we spent a little more time looking at that in education, that would be really interesting because I think that's really the key um, to breaking the cycle of, of, um, you know, just these perpetual, you know, domes of bias that schools, um, you know, perpetrate. And and even just that notion of why, why is that category, you know, putting things into categories? Why is it that even at such a young age, students realize this is what we do? It's, it's so prevalent. And so I think about that a lot, particularly for my students, I may be the only black teacher that they will ever have, ever. And so if that, you know, that's, 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 you know, it's just beginning right there. So, okay, so I'm a black woman, maybe the only black teacher they'll ever have. Um, they see me in this one particular context. Okay, so she's the, the, the PE teacher. Um, they see me, they've, they can see me, I can do things like I can do a handstand, I can do cartwheels, um, that, that I can do pushups. Um, and, and so, okay, so they have this, okay, this woman who is strong, um, this woman who is also can be quite firm. Hmm. Um, so that there are all these different things that they're putting together with, ah, here is this, this black woman, what does that mean? So, um, and, and again, these are not necessarily conversations that we are having directly, but those conversations are happening in their own minds. And so I'm, so I'm thinking always about what awareness are we cultivating in the spaces that we create. So in our classroom community, in the school as a whole, um, where do kids have spaces to, to raise their questions, to, to talk about themselves and their own experiences, what they know and what they don't know? I mean, I had one, one opportunity with students where someone mentioned something about, I'm not a slave. And I said, oh, um, stop, hold, time out, okay. Okay, let's stop. And then I said, tell me what you know about slavery. Where, what do you know about that? And these were second graders and they were able to tell me quite a bit. And so then we were, and then I was able to talk about why that's maybe not the term to be using with each other. And, and, and that was an important conversation, but I wanna say almost more important were the two black girls who were in that class and they were, the way that they looked at me and the way that they were sort of, they were kind of unsure. But the point is that I was sort of like, this is for all of us to know yeah. and deal with and think about. And so that was a really, that was a, for me, a, a really great example of like, okay, I can't shy away from 
something that might be uncomfortable for some folks, but it's not for kids. It's not actually, they just kind of want to have things cleared up. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I, I've had so many guests on the show who talk about that, that, you know, we, we have again, categorized topics that, you know, in my mind, these are the topics that, you know, really do choreograph the way that we operate in society as we grow up, but we've categorized them as, oh, maybe they are not age appropriate. Maybe students aren't mature enough. You know, it's too so-called political, but I think, you know, we're forgetting you know, A, I disagree with that, but B, the silence, as you mentioned, the message that they are getting about that and, you know, sort of them thinking, why is this so taboo? Am I not meant to think about this, even though it's really going to drive, you know, the way that I I operate in the world later on. Um, And so it's been interesting to see that starting to shift. I mean, I still see the phrase age appropriate just used way too often as this, as this barrier, Um, you know, and, and as you said, you know, students are, it is of course age appropriate because it's the world in which they live, um, you know, and and they, they have these questions and it is often that they are comfortable having that conversation because they have not yet learned um, that it is taboo. You know, they, they haven't sort of, they haven't been hit with that message and it's, it's us. So you know, right. again, educators just rehearsing those conversations and hearing stories like yours where we had the conversation, it was necessary and, and age appropriate and the students learned. And it was also brief. It wasn't something that took up the whole time. It was something that it was an interaction that maybe took the space of two minutes, mm-hmm. right? Okay, it came up. Oh, stop, come back. Let's everybody sit down. Da, 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 da. Let's talk about this. All right, are we good? Good, good, okay, good. Moving on. So again, it's, I think, and that's, and that of of all the things, that is age appropriate, right? Like don't go on, don't give them the lecture. Yeah. And if certainly PE is not the area where you ever, you can never give a lecture, right? You really have to like, okay, say your thing and like, let's get on with the thing. Like, let's get the movement part. So, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I'm guessing in so many ways, actually, the PE classroom is a great space to have conversations like that one, um, you know, simply because that like, you know, there you, you are playing with power sometimes in games, right? Like you are like ability is something that you're looking at fairness, uh, you know, uh, you know, is, is right there as well. Um, Sherry, I'm also going to link in my show notes to this episode to your brilliant newsletter that's called Bending the Arc. Um, Listeners, please do subscribe to that. And you ask your readers to think about what their reading agenda is. And I love, love, love that phrase. I'm going to use that all the time. What their reading agenda for summer might be. And I'm hoping you might share uh, what's on yours for listeners or just talk about a few resources that you might have come across this year um, that you think would be uh, good for folks to add to their reading agenda or to consider adding to their summer reading agenda? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a book junkie. Um, I really, I, I just, I love books. And, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about them and reading them and, and, uh, and I've written one. So um, I, this summer, um, one of the things that I, I have, I, I have a lovely stack. And actually one thing I wanna say about reading agenda is um, friends, make friends with a good librarian. Now, 
if you're the librarian who's closest to you is not your friend, find somebody else. There are lots of wonderful librarians online. Um, but for me, my, my reading uh, life has, has just blossomed um, by having uh, a librarian who is constantly sort of like, hey, have you seen this? Hey, how about this? And I, and I love that. And so I've just really like, so my mind has been blown by all the titles that she has sort of um, put in my pathway. Um, the other thing is I, I um, social media is my other sort of source. Um, and the things that I look forward to reading this summer are above all uh, Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed. Um, I've mentioned that a couple of times in the last uh, two newsletters. I just, it's my copy has not yet arrived. I'm waiting uh, with bated breath, um, but I just know, I, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Smith's work. It's just tremendous. Um, the other person that I listen to a lot and will read anything that she writes when I have the opportunity is uh, Tressie McMillan Cotton, who is a sociologist. And, and she is also an educator. So she teaches at the uh, university level, but she writes about anything and everything with such clarity. And she doesn't let us off the hook. She's gonna tell us, she's gonna talk to us about power and status and how those are embedded in her fitness routine and how those show up in uh, her social media presence on Instagram or how she's, you know, in, in the um, food that she's choosing to, to eat, uh, you know, and it's just, she is a marvelous, marvelous um, author and uh, just a, a fabulous writer. Um, and I want to say um, the other, the other things that I think are really great, great reads are the um, youth editions of various um, novels and, and some nonfiction. So the stamped, there are a couple of versions of stamped um, by Ibram Kendi that have been um, adapted for younger readers. So getting it, getting into those, I think are just great, great for the summer, right? Because they're easier to read um, and they offer you, you know, things that you could use with students, but, you know, just for your own edification. So I just think there's just, there's also young, young see, I can't, I can't, I can't stop. Um, young adult literature, so many wonderful new titles that are out. Um, I just finished reading one about a friendship between um, two girls. Um, I think it's called When You Were Everything. But just, I mean, for me, it's, it's really about reading widely, mm -hmm. like just a, a whole variety of things. Also graphic novels. Graphic novels are wonderful. I, I feel like those are a wonderful palate cleanser. You know, if you've read something, you know, thick and heavy, um, then, you know, get a, get a, a graphic novel in there that just kind of, you know, kind of goes pretty quickly and, and it's still, you know, evocative. So yeah, there's just, just lots of things that I'm looking forward to, to digging into. Great. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing we might get to hear more from you on that in your newsletter. So again, listeners, be yes. sure to subscribe for that. And I, I love what you mentioned about, you know, digging into to YA. You know, I've been rethinking what schools say, what the message is when we go to a school and we look at their professional development library. Uh, you know, I was having a conversation with a panel earlier this week about the fact that international schools, you know, literally on different continents, 
I, you know, you could sort of copy paste one professional development library and stick it in the other one. And, you know, that's problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, just kind of thinking about why is it the same five names, you know, again and again and again, um, you know, that there are, there's other perspectives that we should be bringing in. And I also think we really underestimate the power of, of YA and children's lit in terms of being a professional development tool. Um, you know, you know, as you said, it's a great way to connect with students, but it's, you know, in the other vein, it's also just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as young as I once was. And it's kind of, you know, it just reminder of the students that I'm working with, like keeping their perspectives centered in a different way. I think it's a great access tool to that. And, and, you know, has the capacity to start some really profound conversations um, between educators out of school. Absolutely. And I, I really, I do think that there's a tendency to maybe underestimate um, young adult fiction, but, oh, oh, please don't make that mistake. Um, there are just some of, some of the most powerful titles that I've read in the last uh, couple of years have, have belonged to that uh, genre. And it's just, I mean, just the range of, of these particular, also young, younger authors, right? So mm-hmm. these are often younger authors who are writing, um, has just really opened my eyes um, and have been incredibly instructional also for me as a parent, mm. Um, I'm a parent of a, of a rising eighth grader. Um, and so those are, I feel like it's also a way to, for me to keep myself honest. Like mm-hmm. I think of kids as this way, but actually I, maybe not, I may not know the half of it. And so um, I really appreciate uh, YA Lit. It's awesome. Same. And, you know, for, for folks who are listening and are thinking, okay, maybe I will, you know, give the YA hype a chance. If you're wondering, uh, you know, where you might go, Shari, I love that you mentioned, you know, the, the power again of, of Twitter to kind of just bring resources into our media diet that we might not come across. Uh, there's two librarians who, I mean, there's a lot of librarians and on Twitter uh, for folks who look at TL chat, that's a great place to lurk, even if you're not a librarian. Um, I have an episode actually on this show with Katie Vance, who just does this gigantic deep dive in all of the places that she as a librarian goes to, to just sort of like keep things fresh. Um, you know, and again, she's just a, a great, great asset. Uh, and Shifting Schools is an organization I work with. And we were so fortunate earlier in the year to have Julia Torres uh, give us a webinar. It was hands down, I think the best webinar I've ever, ever, ever seen. And and I'm a, a little bit of a, a webinar geek. Like I've seen quite a few. It's just, it's, it's absolutely excellent. And she's another amazing person, you know, to follow, to subscribe to. Um, and that webinar is, is just another great kind of, Hey, here's some different avenues that you might want to explore when you're thinking about your media diet. So Sherry, this past May, uh, you, you shared your thoughts on another podcast, Band PD. It's episode three listeners. I will make sure to link to it in the show notes where you said, quote, in our classes, we are dealing with emotions, authority, boundaries, very human social issues, end quote. And I love that you see, you know, even you talk about this notion of like forming teams in a PE class, that that's a way to examine language, um, you know, and, and really to think about the, the fact that school is just such a heavily gendered space. So I'm wondering if you would talk to us about how your framing of you know, what PE can be, like, how did that vision 
sort of come to be. Um, because I think, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, I, I even early in my teaching career, I am not a PE educator. Um, you know, I've had, oh, you, you know, you can sub that. You can go ahead and be the substitute teacher for that. And it's like, no, no, I can't. You know, that's absolutely an expertise. Um, and sometimes I think, PE is underestimated um, in some ways. So I'm, I'm just very curious to learn a little bit more about your vision for the PE classroom. You know, did you always have this kind of really grand vision for it or is it something that evolved? Um, I wanna say it absolutely evolved because I did not come to PE in the traditional way. Um, and my first, my very first encounter with teaching PE, I had a, I had all male high school classes and at the other end of the spectrum, single sex um, uh, uh, first and second grade. So I had first and second grade girls and then these high school boys. And, and it was also, I stepped into a program that was very traditional where um, the, particularly the high schoolers had, were accustomed to essentially being made to run a little bit and then they were able to play soccer. It was, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of, kind of situation. And I came in with my newfangled ideas about, hey, guess what? We're gonna do a little warm up, and then we're gonna stretch. What? The resistance was strong, um, and and I remember for me that you know those first years it was really about like, oh, how do I manage this? Because at the time I was a considered I was a much younger, uh, you know, young black woman, um, and you know, her these big burly uh, high school boys who were just annoyed that like what. We just can't play soccer. I'm like, well, no, we're going to do these things. Um, and, and I just remember sort of, so for me, PE has always been about finding out how do I do this? How do I work with what students are, ex student expectations? And also my idea about a broader idea about what PE can be and the things that we can actually do in PE. Um, in, in elementary PE, I feel like there's, because you're talking about, you know, the whole range of development, right? So gross motor and fine motor and, and all of these pieces that you're a little bit more at liberty. So it's not as tied to sports as it may be in the secondary, although I hope, I'd like to think that in the field that's changing. Um, at the same time, there is, you know, there's a reliance, right? There's an assumption that, okay, well, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do our kickball unit. We're going to do our soccer unit. Well, we've, Thankfully, I think gotten away from that. But for me, what I've learned is that for students, the student experience of PE is mainly a social one. That mm. the skill that you're working on, whether it's kicking, catching, throwing, running, whatever, because you are there with other people, because what you do is observable by others and therefore public, the things that you do also you have immediate feedback. So if you throw, if you're throwing to a, to a target, whether you make the target or not, or how close you get to the target is immediate feedback. You know how close you got. And if others are observing, they also know how close you got or how far away from the target you were. So, you know, so those aspects make PE this incredible social laboratory. And if I really want my students to come in and have the best possible experience, I have to be thinking about the social aspects. 
that has to be a priority in creating a community where we are respectful of each other, where we recognize we're all learning and where I make it possible for us to be working at, at our own pace in some way, but where we're also able to come together around some things, some shared experiences. So um, I do think that, that PE is a wonderful opportunity, but it's also a challenging one. Um, part, and part of that is due to student expectations, which often come from parent expectations. Um, and, and so I feel like every year I get to practice the art of creating that understanding of, well, if you thought PE was this, guess what? Hey, here we're going to do these things. And you know what? Kids are fine. Kids are like, okay, great. Okay. <laughs> like that really, they really, they want to have a good time. They want to feel accepted. They want to feel um, like they had fun and that, that, you know, that nothing bad happened. And, and when something unfortunate or, or not so appealing happens, that they can, that we can deal with it and then move on, hopefully. Mm. So, but I, but again, I don't want to, you know, for some kids, you know, some things can be quite dramatic and I need to have tools for working with those situations as well. So yeah, like all teaching, it's, it's, it's much bigger than it appears on the surface. And, you know, again, I, I just love what you're saying about considering the social aspect of it and, you know, every class, every subject that has to be a consideration, um, you know, and something that I've, I've thought a lot about is how other subject areas have so much to learn from PE, just in terms of the way that so much of it is like practice, rehearsal, small components of it. Um, you know, I, I often just talk about how much I learned playing sports growing up and that like when you are learning to play basketball, it's not just go play basketball. Even when you're just learning to shoot a basketball, it's like, you know, thinking about positioning of, you know, your feet of the elbow, like it's kind of really broken down into this minutia so you can understand it. Um, and I think in other subject areas, it's like, go play basketball. I'm not going to show you like the detail right. or the nuance of that. Um, and I think again, just breaking things down, almost putting them in slow motion and other subject, uh, subject areas has huge value too. Uh, Sherry, I'd like to go back to your book uh, for our, our final question today. In your book, Care at the Core, the blurb of the book tells us that this text is going to help us rethink what school is for and our role in building better schools. Uh, one of the umbrella topics that you list that folks can dig into when they, they buy your book, buy, buy Sherry's book, um, is, quote, observing education, end quote. And I wonder how the process, uh, you know, of writing your essays really taught you to look differently at education. Um, that's a great question. I, I, when I was putting the book together, when I was deciding which essays are going in and, and which ones were not, um, the, the, the essays about education, <sighs> Are, 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 there's a big range, right? So there's there are things where I talk about, you know, like um, schools in the states. Like I'm talking about charter schools, which is not my experience. But I'm talking, but I'm, but it's in reference to, again, what other people have written and observed. And I'm thinking about how we make assumptions about, well, this experience must be terrible because da da da. da. But I'm thinking, wait a minute. But if you don't have that experience, if you're not that parent 
who is desperate to try to get your child into a program that seems like it's going to lead to a different outcome, a more positive outcome, then you would probably see it differently. And so what I've found is, is that as I have um, looked at situations that are very different from my own, so public schooling in the United States, um, looking at, um, you know, boarding school situations, what, what are the implications of that? What about, um, you know, single, single sex uh, schools? How are they operating? That I'm always curious about the experiences that are not my own. Mm. Because I think that so often, obviously, I've been in the same school for 25 years. That's a long time. And that you can't learn about education without, you know, just staying in that one place. You have to find sources that lead you to investigate other situations. So one of the things that I did several years ago was, was I was on a couple of accreditation teams, a couple of visiting teams, where I got to visit other schools and look at everything in that school, right? That is such an enriching experience when you really have to go into another school while it is still running, right? Well, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you get to see it in operation. And your job is not necessarily, it's not to evaluate, but it is to observe and to, and to, to write down your observations. And that experience has, has definitely shaped my, I think my capacity and also my empathy for situations that are different from the one in which I'm working. So um, I, do, I do think it's important that as we think about education that you can't have vision only looking at your own situation. You have to go beyond that. So for instance, I'm learning so much from the abolitionist movement um, you know, so, you know, what does prison abolition have to do with schools? Well, um, if you bet in, in that um, framework, in those frameworks, I am finding liberatory language that I didn't have. And so when I, when I, when someone's writing about prison abolition and also talking about that application, those applications to, to schools and schooling, then I, I'm listening differently because it's not, it's again, it's not the way that I've been trained to think. So um, I've found that being broad in my reading and my listening has really helped me to think about what school can be. And it goes far beyond really what we are offering students. And, and, and again, I also think that our capacity to listen to students, um, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of work to do in that. And I, I, you know, I, I think some of that comes out of the reality that many of us grew up in systems where teachers didn't listen to us. And so unfortunately, like, you know, we just replicate that. Um, you know, I, 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 love, I love what you're talking about in terms of just looking beyond your own experience and the value that it has, because it does spark questions. Um, I, I don't know if you know Tico Ohms, he's a principal at a school in Switzerland. Uh, he gave a, a learning to talk years ago that has really stuck with me where um, he basically gives a talk and he's like, this is what I wish I could say to the parent caretaker audience at the start of the year. Uh, and he talks about really the popularity of the term rigor in schools and like, why is it so popular? And how did we come to think, you know, that school should be, you know, brutal and like the more harsh it is somehow the better it is for kids. And he compares it to Listerine and that, you know, like 
Listerine is kind of like, oh, this is so harsh. Like this taste in your mouth almost hurts. Therefore it must be good for you. Um, and that, you know, we, we have to start to question that, but I think you're right. It's really difficult unless we kind of step outside of what we've known and what we've experienced and simply what we are comfortable with. It's really hard to come up with those new questions. And as you say, a new, a new vocabulary that I think is necessary too. Um, Alfie Kahn, I'm, I'm going to kind of like mm. bludgeon this quote, but he, he has a great <laughs> blog post where he says, you know, we need to, you know, really think about questioning the status quo. If things, if education was really working, like we'd have a society of people who love reading, who love exercising and, you know, like look around, do we have that lifelong passion, you know? Uh, and, and that's something that I, I think about too, you know, there's, I think many people who, you know, you hear that phrase all the time, like, oh, I'm not a math person or, you know, and it's sort of, that's, that's learned, you know, like that's, that's, that's kind of a learned thing that it's been part of a lot of generations and just thinking about why is that so common to hear from people and, and what role has, has school kind of played in again, yet again, just perpetuating, this is the way we think about learning. Absolutely. I, I, I find that um, something that we are slow to admit is the way in which um, schools are about, are not necessarily about liberation. Um, they are very much about preserving the status quo, about um, conditioning society to behave in a certain way. And those certain ways are those in which serve the dominant culture and that power structure that the dominant culture represents. And, you know, again, there are so many ways in which we what we work around talking about power mm -hmm. in education and really just about everywhere that no one really wants to talk about power, but that's exactly what is happening in the choices we make about how school uh, should function, what it should uh, achieve, what, sh what, what the outcome should be and for whom. Because while we, while we say, oh yes, we, we want equitable outcomes for all children, but actually the reality of that is, no, I want to make sure that my child gets hers, gets his, gets theirs, and your child, well, may just not be good enough, but that's too bad. You know, like, like that, that individualistic nature of, of most of our societies are absolutely upheld by the hierarchical structures of schools. And we can't pretend otherwise. I, I just, I, I, I mean, I, I am part of that. I am absolutely complicit in that system. I mean, I, I cannot, I, I, but I'm aware of it. At least I can say, I, I see, I see where I fit in that. In that, I'm, I am part of it, absolutely. But the awareness that's, that that that's what we're doing needs to be there. Yeah, uh, and I, it's, it's funny because that's sort of like step one. And I'm right there with you, you know, how much school is about compliance, uh, you know, like I've been in that position too, where it's like, I'm reinforcing this rule that I think is complete BS. Am I really going to have to do that? And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of teachers are in that situation sometimes, um, you know, and I think we're moving to a model where folks feel a little bit more empowered to start questioning and just to start reckoning and realizing 
yeah, that rule existed when I was in school too. It was also not great then. Um, it's in some ways even more harmful that it's still around today. And thinking about why is it that compliance is something that we want students to value? You know, does it mean if a student is really quote unquote successful here, what's the correlation with how compliant they are? Um, and, you know, and, and really thinking about what is that message? Can you be successful at this school without being a compliant person? Huh. Well, it's one. It's I want to say that that is the one that um, there is little doubt <laughs> that the jury is pretty clear. Oh. <laughs> like compliance is is the is the prerequisite mm. um, that we are not as you know critical thinking to a point, um, but don't re don't upset the system. Critical thinking in your essay, yes, mm. but. Um, no, we're not going to change that policy, the dress code. We're not going to change the dress code policy. We're not going to, we are still going to um, indicate that uh, we're going to police how girls dress as opposed to how boys dress. Uh, we are going to also enforce the gender binary in doing so. Um, you know, all of these things are very much about, yes, compliance and maintaining the status quo, but um, with a nod towards <laughs> critical thinking Gosh, you know, and that's what you just said made me think about, I, we, it's almost like we need to say what we mean when we use certain words um, and, and kind of reclaim them in a way, you know, and when we say status quo, what do we actually mean? What is the status quo? Saying it out loud, um, you know, that's a, that's a conversation that um, I hope more folks reckon with because, uh, you know, in my work, I often have the term family values thrown at me mm. and like, well, you know, we can't talk about LGBTQ plus inclusion because family matter, family values. And um, I had a conversation with a school leader, like we should take that phrase back. And anytime we are doing, you know, work around talking about different types of families, that's family values and just rebranding it almost. Um, I think you're right. I and mean, I do think that we, in many ways, in this current media climate, we are, we are constantly, our culture wars are actually branding wars. Mm. That, that, you know, you, you, now that, that, that the right has sort of made critical race theory, the boogeyman, that that has been suddenly rebranded. And of course it, they have no concept, right? They, they don't understand, but the point is they've been able to claim it as, ooh, hold it up as this is, ooh, this is scary. And, and also uh, use it as a big bag of mm -hmm. stuff, right? Like, ooh, this is, this is what we need to fight against. And so again, that, so I think we are talking about branding wars and those are absolutely gonna be in our schools and we, we need to be aware and also um, active proactive in saying this is who we are as a school and as you say family values like what what, what does that mean right mm -hmm. because I mean for instance a small thing in my own institution was instead of going on with you know what we're, we're acknowledging Mother's Day I said look I said not everybody that's maybe not the right way to go can we do parents caregivers can we do you know we need to take a different take because not every family has that configuration, right? So I do feel that that, that awareness is coming into 
the conversations that allow us to actually make better choices and hopefully better experiences for, for students and their families. Well, thank you, Sherry, so much for, for this conversation. And I, you know, I hope, again, folks who are listening over the summer are just thinking about what are some of those terms, what are some of those phrases that um, we need to think about what that brand is all about. And we need to think about, you know, what do we mean when we say that? What is unspoken? You know, what's the, what's the quiet part that we are afraid to kind of, you know, say out loud there? Uh, because I, I really do think even the word traditional, when we use traditional in schools, you know, mm-hmm. what are we talking about there? And, you know, as I, you mentioned traditions? earlier, whose traditions? Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, you know, again, we, we, we do need to just sort of unpack that a little bit, a little bit better and, and maybe a little bit more authentically. Um, so thank you for, for all of those provocations, Sherry, and all of the resources that we've talked about, of course, will be linked in the show notes. Um, Sherry's book, Care at the Core, um, you know, again, there's another one. Is it compliance at the core of your school or is it care? So Sherry, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Tricia.